0: Hey, listeners, to help us keep delivering in depth wine business content, we've carefully selected partners for our show that we think will resonate with you. This episode's partner is Report, the best way to save wine without planning ahead.
1: We have Mark Gilladou, beverage director at Comi Restaurant in Oakland, California.
0: What made you believe Report works? Extensive blind tastings over a period of, well, the better part of a year. I spent six months having different bottles, opening different bottles, pouring a glass every month. I think I ended up with 12 bottles on my desk at one point where I'd opened them in two week intervals and was pouring glasses out of them in one month intervals. It was about six months of trials like that before I brought it into the restaurant and I kept a few of those bottles around. Even a uh, the sort of bellwether for me was I wanted a notoriously prone to oxidation, but delicate wine. So I did a, a Condria Vigne for nine months and it was still fresh at the end of nine months. Um, Those were two-month intervals on that bottle. And that was sort of like, okay, now if if this can keep Kondryu fresh, fruity, and floral for the better part of a year, then we're solid for any application I would need it in the restaurant.
1: Learn more at repour.com, R-E-P-O-U-R.com, or find the link in our show notes. And for a 30-minute overview of all things Repour, listen to episode 24, where CEO Tom Lutz gives us all the details. Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau, the podcast
0: that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights with your hosts, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. And on this podcast, our guest is Bartholomew Broadbent, who's the owner of Broadbent Selections. And we're going to be talking about the introduction or reintroduction of Madeira wines to the U.S. market. Bartholomew, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I was wondering if you could give Peter and myself a brief introduction on your personal history and background in the wine industry.
2: Yes. How many hours do we have?
0: (laughs) (laughs) As long as you need, but realistically an hour.
2: (laughs) I grew up in the wine business. My father is called Michael Broadbent, was called Michael Broadbent. And he started the wine auctions for Christie's in 1966. And he wrote various books about wine and he wrote for decanter magazine for 433 consecutive months so i grew up drinking some of the finest wines in the world because of his that's what he drank at chrissy's it wasn't swill and i left england a couple of times i went to australia when i was 18 to go and pick grapes and wineries and work in wineries for harvest i then went to work i worked in cognac as a tour guide and interpreter for Hennessy Cognac. I worked in London for Harrods in their wine department, and then for Harvey's Fine Wines in Pall Mall. And then I was in my office in London, and the client came in after a rather boozy club lunch. And we had the directors of allied breweries in the basement downstairs, so I had to keep this guy quiet. So I shoved him in a cupboard and gave him a glass of sherry and locked the door. And every 20 minutes, I opened the door and filled up his glass. And after five glasses, he said, they'd like you. And Canada. And it turned out he was consulting to some Canadians. And he got me a job in Montreal where I stayed for one year for a wine agency called Shenley. And then they transferred me to Toronto. And then I was there for four years. And I met the Symington family who moved me to San Francisco, where I spent 21 years in San Francisco. I met a girl there. I thought she said virgin, but it turned out to be Virginia. So now I live in Virginia. <laughs> and I spent 10 years with the Symington family, started premium port wines for them, ran it for 10 years and went around. To- a country teaching about Port Madeira and then having not reached a glass ceiling I didn't marry one of her daughters so I basically had to set out on my own and started Broadbent Selections and the Broadbent brand.
0: I Was marrying one of the 17 daughters on the table? <laughs>
2: That's
0: part of the partnership.
2: The- <laughs> I suppose I could have. When I look back on my life I think of all the young ladies whose parents owned Bordeaux chateaus and I ended up marrying an American. Very few
1: wine dynasties I guess <laughs> to choose from of Americans. There's, there's a couple I guess you could have married a Mandavi, perhaps, or something like that.
2: Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
1: So for broadband selections and broadband wines, could you give us a brief overview of what's in the portfolio and how it's structured?
2: Yeah. So when I started my company in 1996, broadband selections, well, my main goal leaving the Symington's was to create my own brand of Port and Madeira which is called Broadbent. But then we also started the import company. And the goal was to originally just do the Ports of Madeiras until Constantine Guntram came along and said, for 10 years, you've been working for someone else and you couldn't represent my wines, but now you work for yourself. You don't have to be restricted. So we took on a German wine. Basically, I went to the emerging regions because all the best French wines and Italian wines were already snapped up by other people. So I went to the emerging regions like Portugal and New Zealand, which was New lands all the New World countries, basically. Today, we have more wines from South Africa than any other region. We have, represent about 14 wineries from South Africa. And basically, I think we're considered the importer of the finest wines from South Africa, and certainly not the biggest wineries, but the most Ebensadis of the world, Adi Badenhorst of the world, Chris Heights of the world. And then we our biggest single brand, apart from the broadband Vina Verde, is Spy Valley from New Zealand. And then we have probably our most famous brand is Chateau Musard from Lebanon. And basically, we represent wineries from emerging regions like England. We represent the top sparkling wine there called Gusbourne. We have four wines from Australia, including Elderton and Tyrrell's. We have some Austrian wines a great wine from Chile called Di Martino. We do now have French wines. We have Domaine Georges Vernet, and we have two Italian wines, Bindi Segardi and Capana from Chianti Classico and Brunello de Montalcino. And Portugal, we've now reduced it just to our own range, the Broadbent wines, because we produce a lot of wines there. And we have a Spanish wine, and, and we represent a winery in Virginia called Barbersville, the top winery here. We've just started representing a gin from Wales called Pollination Gin. And finally we've just launched our own wine in Napa Valley, a Cabernet Sauvignon called the Auctioneer. Called Auctionnaire.
1: So you started the company just to import your own broadband wines and now it's a huge portfolio and probably it sounds like one of the great portfolios for importers in the US.
2: Yeah. Initially, when we started, we represented other people's port houses. So we represented Ferreira, which was one of the most important ones. And that gave us our bread and butter, the cash flow to start Broadbent. So now we have Madeira, Port, Vina Verde, Douro Reds, Dow, Whites. And we also make Broadbent in Austria, Grüner Vina.
1: Okay. So there's one Austrian wine, but a pretty strong focus on Portugal. What's the tie or rationale for being so Portuguese-focused.
2: Yeah, so because when I moved to America, I was moved here in 1985-86 to teach Americans about port. So after 10 years of that, I had developed a reputation for knowing about port and Madeira. And so when we started that, the focus was Portugal. And then we developed broadband vina Vino Verde when Vino Verde was not popular. And that's become our single biggest selling wine. And it's grown hugely during the pandemic too, which is nice. So we want to focus most of the conversation around the wines of Madeira
0: and how you're reintroducing these wines that have historically had a major importance in the colonization of America and honestly are most likely what most of our forefathers were drinking for a good period of the early founding of this country. And so I'm curious on a little bit of that background about like, why did it fall out of favor? If you can give us a little bit of context, and then we're going to start covering like the hurdles of reintroducing this to the U.S. market. So maybe we can start with like a little bit of the background about the historics of Madeira in the U.S.
2: Yeah, and I think when I tell you about the history of Madeira in the U.S., you'll understand that, as we go along, what an easy relaunch it is in the U.S., compared to trying to develop port, which no one knew about and had no real history with America. But basically, Madeira was the biggest selling wine in America until Prohibition. It's a wine which I describe as being the most American historic wine. It was basically invented through shipping to America. Madeira is an island, it belongs to Portugal, but it's about 600 miles off the coast of Morocco. So it's more Africa, Northern Africa, than Europe. And all the boats or ships used to stop in Madeira to pick up provisions, and they used to load the barrels of Madeira in the bottom of the boats, in the holds of the ships, which got very, very heated. And they used the barrels of Madeira as ballast in these ships. And one of these ships arrived in Savannah or wherever it was going and forgot to unload the cargo of Madeira, returned to the island where they tasted it and found it was much, much better than before it left. And they figured that having crossed the oceans twice had heated the wine. So for many years, there was a law that you couldn't sell any Madeira till being shipped around the world twice. That's slightly impractical these days, but we do still simulate that voyage by creating Madeira. We create it by cooking it to 115 degrees Fahrenheit for three months, minimum of three months. And that's what turns a wine to Madeira. It is a fortified wine, just like port. So we do add brandy to it. But not only is it an American drink because it was invented through shipping to America, but it's also was the biggest selling wine. As I said, the founding fathers all drank Madeira. It was the wine is what people drank for health. It wasn't water because water was not very safe for drink. So wine and beer were the drinks of choice. But the Constitution and Declaration of Independence were both toasted with Madeira. Betsy Ross, when she was saying a flag, had a side table with a glass of Madeira on it. It was even your first tax loophole because King James I, during taxation without representation, drew a big circle around Europe and said, everything from here going to America has to be taxed. And being the rather dim king that he was, he didn't do the loop to include Madeira in that circle. So Madeira was a sort of tax-free island. So wine really had a boost there as well. So it was tax-free and really took off in America. The problem was a couple of things which almost destroyed Madeira. One was Phylloxera, which moved to the island and destroyed all the vines there, and as it did the rest of Europe. And of course, the solution was to graft onto American rootstock. But the bigger problem was prohibition, because in 1920 or 1919, 1920, the... I think it was the 18th Amendment was Prohibition. And basically 95% of Madeira was sold in America. 5% went to Russia and England. So overnight, 95% of their market disappeared and they had to rip out the vines and plant other crops that they could sell like bananas and whatever else. And then it wasn't until, well, after the repeal of Prohibition, that was on December 5th, 1933. By then, shipping had improved and then especially... Going into the Second World War, shipping was much, much better than prior to 1920. So shipping improved. The ships no longer needed to stop on the island and became a forgotten island wine and never got relaunched. There was one person in America... Daryl Corti from Sacramento, Corti Brothers, he was bringing in a brand called Abudiram for his stores. But otherwise, there was no Madeira in America. I think Burns Steakhouse bought some at Hugh Auctions and Christie's Auctions, some old Madeiras for his restaurant. But the only other restaurant I knew of in America was actually Massa's in San Francisco, who offered you a glass of Chateau Chem or a glass of Madeira to go with the foie gras. And that was basically the state of affairs until 1989 when I did this relaunch. So I was
0: looking on your website and it was said that broadband selections or broadband wines was started in 1996. But obviously you started doing some relaunch prior to that. And then also your wines that you're selecting go way beyond 1996.
2: Yeah. So until 1996, I was working for the Symington family. Back in 1988, they came to me and said, we're thinking of buying the Madeira Wine Company. And do you think you could sell Madeira in America? And I said, absolutely, because I knew the history of Madeira. With America, which by the way, Americans don't really know the history of Madeira with America because um, all references to alcohol are removed from children's history textbooks at school. So you don't learn about it. So basically, in 88, they bought the Madeira Wine Company and I did a tasting in San Francisco. We did 19 Madeiras going back to 1845 and we invited the trade and press and we got about 300 or more people from a very jaded wine market to come to this tasting. And the very next week, Trevenia in Napa Valley had seven Madeiras by the glass. Every restaurant in the A, B, and even C category carried Madeira the following day. And of course, wine trends that start in San Francisco spread everywhere. And from there, it took off tremendously. So I'm curious, you mentioned the historical context of
0: prohibition and then improved shipping. When you were reintroducing Madeira in the late 80s, early 90s, what was the state of the vineyards in Madeira and the wine production scene? Was it a fraction of its former self? Was it still holding on? That's part of the context I don't quite have.
2: Yeah, so it was a fraction of the days from the founding fathers' days when the whole island was, everything was centered around Madeira practically but there aren't any vineyards in Madeira. There's one vineyard actually, which belongs to Henriques and Henriques, but all the other producers, about eight producers in Madeira, but they buy from about a thousand different growers. And the growers grow their grapes often on trellis vines so that they can grow other crops underneath. They'll have vines among other crops that they subside off. So one grower might only bring in one bucket of grapes and someone else may bring in a bigger batch of grapes. So there aren't any vineyards to go and see. When people tell me, oh, I want to go to Madeira to see the vineyards and wineries, I basically tell them, okay, now what you have to do is you go there, spend half a morning seeing wineries or a winery, and then spend the next five days minimum going around the island because it's the most spectacularly beautiful island with just stunning scenery and so much to do that going to wineries is really a waste of time, I think. But it's got the second highest cliff in the world. It's got amazing restaurants, some which are totally weirdly inaccessible. You have to catch a ski lift type cable card to get down to one of them because there's no other way other than sea to get to it. It's just a great place to visit. But you won't see many vineyards and you'll see a few vines scattered here and there. But it's a small island that has no extra land. So you can't increase the production of vineyards, the growth of vineyards, because all the land that you can possibly use to grow anything on is taken up already. And in terms of the
0: innovations around winemaking, you mentioned the voyage being obsolete. There's two distinct heating processes. When did those come about in terms of the overall timeline?
2: There are two types of heating methods. One is the asufa. Asufa is artificial heating, basically. We do that for the three-year-old wines and maybe five-year-old wines. But basically what happens is you either have coils of water going through pipes inside the tanks, or you know how in Napa, if you go to see a very large winery in California or Australia, you see tanks outside the wineries with cooling blankets on the outside. We use those, but we just put warm water instead of cool water to warm up the wines for three months at 115 Fahrenheit. The other more traditional method, which was a historic way to make Madeira, is to leave the wines in the attics of the buildings where they got heated very naturally by the warmth of the room in the sunshine. One of the innovations we've done with Broadbent is we age our older wines in three different levels. So we do have some in the attic temperature then we have some on the ground floor level, and then we have some in cellar temperature, basement temperature. And we age them. So let's say we age them for 10 years that way, we can blend wine from all three levels. And that I find instead of, if you just have wines in the attics, they tend to be more voluptuous. Whereas I think by being able to blend in cellar temperature wines, you retain elegance. You give a wine more elegance. So I think there's wines more interesting now than they've ever been for that reason. By the way, you asked me about our wines, the Broadbent wines, which we started in 1996, but we do have older wines. And the reason for that is because when I started the brand, I sent my parents to the island. My father's known to be mad keen on Madeira. If you have asked him what his desert island wine was, he'd always say Madeira. And partly because he loves it, but partly because it's the only, assuming he's on a hot island, it's the only wine that would survive. (laughs) Practical man. (laughs) Yeah. But I sent my parents to the island with the purview to find old barrels which we could buy to put our name on, and also to come up with blends for our five-year-old and rainwater and ten-year-old. And my mother's notes were fantastic. She wrote back saying, this one's a deathbed razor. Uh, I rang her and said, "What's a deathbed razor?" And she's well. If I'm on my deathbed and someone gives me this, I'll be fine. I'll just get up and be invigorated. Sadly, I didn't. When she was on her deathbed, I didn't have the wine left to test the theory. I should have kept a bottle at home, but <laughs> didn't. But she appreciates the humor in my story there. But all which?
1: Yeah, I didn't know if that would be a positive connotation <laughs> or a negative one with the razor. Could be the wine is so sharp that it's like a razor cutting your face or something.
2: It's the acidity. The hallmark of great Madeira is that acidity, which is essential to, it makes it the most versatile wine you can have. It's the only dessert wine that really is a dessert wine because you can put it with anything citrus, even balsamic vinegar, nothing harms it. And then Madeira is sweet, but it has a dry finish, so it can be put with dessert as well because it doesn't clash with the sweetness of dessert. Whereas TBAs or Sauternes or late harvest wines, they all clash with dessert and and they're not very good with dessert because they taste like water when you put them with dessert.
1: So you said there's eight producers still on the island. And so Broadbent is one of those eight?
2: No, there are eight producers who make a lot of different brands. So one producer, the Madeira Wine Company, would make Landy's, Leacock's, Cossack Gordon, Miles. Justino's is owned by a French family they also own Henriques and Henriques. And between them, they make all the brands like they make Sandeman they make Broadbent for us. And then you have some other producers. But the eight producers were well, only seven until about two years ago. And a couple of years ago, another producer started. Yeah. So Broadbent is wine, which we have a, a woman who makes our wine. We had a head winemaker for the whole Justino's winery who oversees everything. But Broadbent Winemaker is a woman. And we have our own barrels. That so it's not our own. With these brands, they're uh, not necessarily just buy his own brands with wine with their own labels on. In our case, we actually have our own barrels there and we have our own wines and it's a unique blend to us, which we created, or my parents and I created. Is the Elevage something that is owned by Broadbent or is that part inside
0: one of those companies that you just have say in it?
2: Yeah, so there are specific barrels which are ours, a blending. But in the case of, we did something last year which was unique. In 1998, we created these single cask Madeiras. But last year, we bottled a bunch of single cask Madeiras. And they allowed us at Justino's to go around the entire cellars. You know, they've got thousands of barrels, literally thousands of barrels. And we were able to pick the very best barrels and bottle them as single bottlings. So 300 cases maximum of six packs but.
1: So how many different Madeiras and how many like nine liter case equivalents or bottles do you bottle
2: annually? The bigger question is the island in general. For drinking consumption, there's approximately 100,000 barrels produced. If you put that into perspective, there are three port producers who make well over a million cases each. So total between the eight producers is about 100,000. Cases of drinking Madeira, they do make some more Madeira than that, but they add salt to it. It's undrinkable, and it's sold to France for cooking. But coming down a bit, Justino's and Henriques and Henriques between the two, those two companies, they make about seventy-five percent of all Madeira. Justino's themselves makes about fifty-five percent of all Madeira. With the Broadbent brand, which we make at Justino's, we probably make about. 5,000 cases a year currently, but we can grow as much as we want within reason. Obviously, if Madeira cells boomed, that'd be a problem for all of us because there's not enough production on the island.
1: And what are the different styles and and varietals that you make within those 5,000 cases?
2: Yeah, there are about three red grapes and seven white grapes. The red grapes, which makes about 80% of all the Madeira on the island. The most important one is called Tinta Negra. Then there's Triumphou and Complexa. The white grapes are better known because until very recently, we weren't allowed to put Tinta Negra on the labels. We can now, but until very recently, we couldn't. So people only know the other grapes because they actually appear on the bottles. They're Circial, while Boile, Tarantas, Bastardo, and Muscatel. I don't know of any Bastardo or Muscatel being made today. I think that was pulled out with prohibition. There's very little Tarantas made, maybe 50 cases here on the island. But the other grapes, Social, Vedoal, and Malmsey, are not only the name of grape, but they're also the name of a style. So if you said, I want a Social Madeira, you're always going to have a dry Madeira. It's the name of grape, and it's a dry one. Vedelio, always medium dry, while medium sweet and Malmsey is the sweet one. And we make these sweetness levels, which we can create them with two systems. One is you can add the brandy to the wine during fermentation a little bit later. That will make more sugar get converted into alcohol. So basically, if you want to make a drier Madeira, you can add the brandy a little bit later. If you want to make a sweeter one, add brandy a bit sooner when there's more sugar left over. But also we control the alcohol contents by altitude. So The sweetest wines are grown at sea level where it's much warmer and riper. And the social is grown pretty high up in the hills where it ripens less and you have more acidic grapes. In the different
1: styles, you still make like Kohaitas and Tenure and Rainwater and all this sort of thing?
2: Yes. So we make Rainwater, which is a lighter style of Madeira. It's usually three years old, but it can be 10 years. There's no rule. It's just got to be a lighter style. Then we bottle the Madeiras at three years of age, five years of age, 10 years of age, 15 years of age, or 20 or more years of age. A vintage port has to be two years old when you can bottle it. A vintage Madeira has to be 20 years old when you have to bottle it. So obviously vintage Madeira is extremely expensive to produce. We don't, I have the word vintage on the label because it's trademarked by the port shippers in Portugal. So we just have the date and no vintage. But a few years ago, Costa Campos, who's the great general who used to run Justino's, he petitioned the government to allow us to put grape varieties and colheita on the label. Colheita is a style of wine that's been made forever. It's just uh, the word colheita means vintage in Portuguese. But now, today, to be called a colheita, it has to be a minimum of five years of age. So it's a single year, but it hasn't reached the 20 years of age, which is what is required for a vintage Madeira. So colonel are usually bottled sometime after five years of age. And we basically petitioned the government, said it's, you know, it's unfair for the port shippers to sell a wine at two years of age and sell it based on a vintage date, whereas we have to wait 20 years when they can't afford it. So they changed the law to allow us to put out colhaters. Colheta-Madeira is slightly different to port, which is also a single-year port, but that's a tawny port that's got to be at least seven years of age, whereas Madeira is at least five years of age. It seems unfair,
0: the difference in rules. And up into our previous conversation, I actually realized that the word vintage can't be on a fortified one in Portugal unless it's a port. And it never occurred to me. I just assumed when I saw the number, the year on there, that it was just vintage and that you would just call it vintage Madeira. But the fact that it has to be called just the, it can't actually say the word vintage on it is really bizarre rules for me.
2: Yeah, and they. whereas historically we've always always referred to it as vintage, nowadays they're referring it to as, as fresquera, which is the same thing as vintage. One never really thinks about the fact that the word vintage isn't there. We just see it's a vintage Madeira, vintage dated Madeira, and you call it a vintage Madeira. So let's talk about our actual selling of Madeira specifically in the U.S.
0: Outside of wine education, how do you size up? What is the market size from Madeira in the
2: U.S. at the moment? Ooh, that's a really good question. If we're selling about 5,000 cases. I'm guessing that it's probably not more than about 25,000 cases. England is buying a lot of Madeira now as well. Japan drinks a lot of Madeira. But the U.S. is either second after or third after Japan and England. Oh, so England's really taken the number one spot in terms of buying these. Maybe America's ahead of England, but Japan buys a lot of Madeira. And also Canada's pretty big in Madeira. But in terms of selling Madeira, what's really interesting is for 10 years, I was specialized in port Madeira. And in 1996, I became diversified with other wines. But it's really interesting. In the late 1990s, port sales began to slow down, and I think they're pretty stagnant. And... One of the reasons, I believe, is the fact that it coincides with the rise in alcohol levels of table wines in places like California and Australia and Chile and Argentina. The high alcohol trend, which started back then, was the death knell for port. Because if you are going out to dinner, two people going out to dinner, and you're sharing a bottle of wine that's 12.5% alcohol, you can drink it. You're due to evolution and the fact we're drinking wine for 9,000 years plus, our brains are adapted to 12% wine or less. So with the introduction of wines that sort are of 15%, 14% alcohol, our brains haven't adapted to this. So you can share a bottle of wine at 12.5% alcohol and still want a glass of port because you're not drunk, you're perfectly fine, you want something else. When the wine reaches about You know, if you're drinking wine that's uh, 15% alcohol, you get two thirds of the way down and you're both completely drunk and you don't want anything else. If you do, you just finish that bottle. So that, along with drink drive laws, but more that than anything, I think is what has destroyed the growth of port. Whereas Madeira is a really interesting wine because it hadn't established itself completely by then. So it wasn't impacted by that. So I find that Madeira is very easy to sell because it really appeals to the intellect of a consumer who is a high-end consumer. And the fact that the stories that go along with Madeira, the ties to American history, the beauty of the island, tourism going there a lot with cruise ships and people now even direct flights from the United States to Funchal. I'm not sure if they're flying during COVID, but they were just starting so Madeira is on the travel path and people are discovering it and the stories are fantastic and the versatility of the fact that it's got that acidity and makes it so delicious. Whereas port is really just an after-dinner drink or to go with silt and cheese or chocolate desserts. Whereas Madeira, you can have it before dinner with nuts or cheese, you can have it with salads, it's the only wine that goes with salads, you can have it with dessert, you can have it after dinner. And I find if I'm having a dinner party and I'm ready to go to bed, a glass of port is a good way to just end the evening. Whereas Madeira has that invigorating acidity. It just keeps you chatting. And if you're going out, drink Madeira. So even
0: though the ABVs are similar, the nature of port being an after dinner drink and the rise of ABV in wines, you think has basically caused the sales to stagnate and you sell both, obviously. So you just mentioned a couple pairings and when times to drink it, but like when do people drink or consume Madeira? And what have you experienced from your sales in the U.S.? How are people consuming it?
2: I have to tell you my favorite food and wine pairing story with Madeira. Robert, I think I've told you in the past. One of my favorite stories of all, I was doing a tasting. I used to be the director of the reserve tastings for the food and wine classic in Aspen for 25 years I did that. And one year I was doing a tasting of Madeira's and I always had panels on my reserve tastings. So I invited Robert Parker, the wine writer, and Julia Child, the cook, and a couple of Canadian guys to be on the panel. Julia was delighted. She loves Madeira. And right before the tasting at the Little Nell, she came up to me and said, bananas, you've got to have bananas. And I said, why? And she said, because the best food and wine pairing in the world is bananas and Madeira. So I went to the manager of the Little Nell and said, you, you've got to have some bananas. So I think they went to a shop and bought some <laughs> and they chopped them up and Everyone had a little dish in front of them with some slices of bananas. And at the end of a tasting, someone put up their hands, can I ask a question? And I said, sure. And he said, well, can you tell us why we have bananas in front of us? And I said, oh, gosh, I forgot about that. And I turned to Julia and said, Julia, can you remind them why you wanted bananas? And she was pretty old back then. And she replied saying, oh, dear, I can't remember <laughs> it must have been Robert Parker who asked why are there bananas on my plate (laughs) (laughs) it wasn't Robert Robert wasn't very pleased with me during that tasting because there was another Robert on the panel and I was making a joke saying one of my panelists Robert isn't up and coming wine writer. (laughs) Robert thought I was being rude to him because he was obviously mega famous by then. (laughs) But the other Robert was uh, also a wine writer from Canada.
0: So talking about who the demographics for who buys Madeira, you already mentioned kind of like a wine savvy consumer. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, do you have any demographics or where in the country they said, is it really
2: kind of across the country? Is there certain age ranges? I find it's all ranges. As long as people uh, like wine, they like Madeira. So it could be Women, men, could be old men, could be young women, could be everything. When I was developing the port market, it was very different because that started off with just 70-year-old men in their leather armchairs in their clubs drinking old port. But over the next 10 years, or let's say five years of intensive education, you saw demographics come down to six-year-olds, 50-year-olds, 40-year-olds. And when the 40-year-old men started drinking port, women started drinking. And then it kept going down until my favorite tasting of all was for the spinsters in San Francisco, this group of women aged 21 to 32 years of age. And we did a tasting, sit-down tasting for about 300 people. And they all went home loving port, having been educated and bought port for their parents for Christmas. And it basically, it took a long time. Whereas Madeira... Had the head start because it came into the US back in 1989 and really over the education on fortified wine had happened. And I find that today the wine consumer has evolved a lot. Back in the 80s, when I moved to America, if you saw someone on a plane reading a wine magazine like Wine Spectator, you'd change seats to sit next to them just because it was so unusual to see anyone interested in wine. But today, everyone knows about wine everyone loves wine drinks wine doesn't matter what age group it is you have consumers in all age groups so it's easy to promote to them because they understand wine already they like wine and to tell them this is the most american wine you'll ever drink so it just immediately grabs their attention
0: it's my new fourth of july wine oh, i'm gonna celebrate curious on on-premise versus off-premise because i see it a lot on restaurants and what i love about it is i can Taste a wide range, especially some really older vintages. Where are the sales are they mostly on premise, are they mostly off
2: premise? So we're recording this during the pandemic, and obviously, you know, we were actually we were going to bring in some very old 1900 Madeiras from the island, which we have, but we put that on hold because those sort of thing is going to be in restaurants. Whereas we find that consumers love Madeira at home; it's grown during pandemic because people are consuming wines at home. And the, the wonderful thing about Madeira for your home is that once you buy a bottle of Madeira and open it, it never goes bad, it never goes off. So you can buy a social Videle Boile, Malmsy, you can buy all four and have them all open and you can drink them over years and decades even you don't need to worry about them spoiling. Even I have bottles of Madeira on a shelf above my stove. I don't worry about them. I, I once tested a theory and saying you can put it in your trunk of your car all summer long. I tested that theory. And one April, I put a bottle of 10-year-old Marmsey Broadbent, which I'd opened and taken a couple of glasses out. I put it in the trunk of my car, forgot about it until August when I had a dinner party and I Ran out of Madeira, or at least I didn't want to open the best stuff for those people who were there. And so I ran out to my car and grabbed this bottle and poured it into glasses to give to everyone. But on tasting it, I found it was too warm because it had been in the trunk of my car. So I put ice cubes in each glass and it was perfectly fine. It was delicious. So
1: Madeira was relaunched in 1989. How has the US market for Madeira changed over that time?
2: It's grown enormously. People are finally aware of Madeira. It's interesting because the brands which I represented prior to starting my own broadband brands in 1996, the brands I was selling from 89 to 96 are not very well known these days at all. Landy's is the best known of those brands, but they're really not very well. If you look at the Wine Spirits magazine, restaurant survey, Blandy's is way down the list of most popular brands. But Manny Burke from Rare Wine Company started his company, Rare Wine Company, in I think it was 1991, something like that. And he was initially buying Madeiras. We were doing tastings together with my Madeiras and some old wines that he bought. But then he started his own brand of Madeira. And between him and I, the education has continued and he's done a very good job promoting Madeira. A lot of people uh, see his wines. And I think that it's now widely available in restaurants, whereas it's only growing. And I think also the advent of social media has helped a lot because you have sommeliers who taste Madeiras and love it and tweet about it. And then that's helped spread the word of Madeira. So instead of relying on the occasional wine writer to teach about Madeira with the advent of social media, the word spreads much quicker. So people have learned about Madeira much quicker. And whereas 15 years ago, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, I found people were just beginning to go to Portugal to see the Douro region. And now it's a very common place for people to go. But in the past five years, the increase in interest in going to visit Madeira has just exploded beyond sommeliers, wine writers, even consumers now. It's a very popular destination for people in the wine business and especially wine writers and sommeliers. They all want to go to Madeira because it's partly because it's a beautiful island, but partly because they've discovered Madeira. They want to learn more about it. So you
1: mentioned earlier the a bit of
2: a shift or a rift
1: between Madeira sales and port sales. Are Madeira sales somehow tied or at all correlated with the efforts that like Sherry has put into reviving their market?
2: Well, I think what's helped Sherry a lot, and it has helped Madeira for sure as well, but a lesser extent is the mixology and cocktail culture. In the past five to 10 years, that has exploded and Madeira and is a fantastic wine to use in in cocktails. And the other thing is about cooking with Madeira, people are gradually learning that if you use a domestic Madeira that's produced by a, a New York State winery or California winery, and they're calling it Madeira. If you it may be cheap, and if you cook with it, Every time you pour it in, the flavor burns off, so you have to keep adding more. So you're using a lot of it to try and get any flavor because it's not made the way Madeira is made. The way that Madeira is made is that you heat it, you cook it, so the wine is already cooked. So when you add Madeira to a dish, you're not burning the flavor off. The flavor stays. So you might use a tablespoon of Madeira versus a cup of uh, fake Madeira. And also the fake Madeira is not very nice to drink, whereas you could cook with Madeira and both drink it whilst cooking and pour it into the food. So
0: I am curious on, uh, obviously there's been a research in sherry, and I'm wondering how much of that is tied to the proliferation of Spanish restaurants and Spanish cuisine. Obviously, Portugal has amazing food, but there's not a lot of Portuguese restaurants out there. In fact, when I visited Portugal, I was really blown away by the food. It's just like at another level, even compared to Spain. But you don't see Portuguese restaurants. And, and here, there's tons of Spanish restaurants. And I have to imagine that help with sherry sales. Do you have the same hurdles with Madeira and not having Portuguese outlets?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's been a problem since 1985, 86, when I started selling wine in America. We started selling Portuguese table wines in 1996. And it was always a problem. The Spanish had a, this advantage of tapas bars and, and Spanish restaurants. And the Italians obviously have the same with Italian restaurants and French have French restaurants. But the Portuguese, though the food is spectacularly good and delicious and well-class, you don't really have many Portuguese restaurants. And it is a problem. But The advantage for Madeira is the fact that Madeira is perceived to be an American tradition, so it isn't restricted to any ethnic restaurants. It is the quintessential American wine, so it goes into all restaurants. That's not a problem for Madeira. So barbecue pairing in the South? Absolutely, actually, yes.
0: So I'm also curious on the prices. Uh, Something you and I talked about previously was that you get a lot of quality for the money, but prices are slowly on the climb. And part of that supply and demand in terms of there's a limited production where port has huge multiple larger of wine being produced every year.
2: So when I did that launch of Madeira in 1989, until then there had been no market for Madeira. And so the island was stocked full of great, old Madeiras. And I was selling the 1845 for $65 retail. The 1863 was $45 retail. The American market has definitely learned about Madeira. And in the past four or five years, it's completely taken off in auction markets. Having spent 10 years going around selling these old Madeiras, basically, we depleted most of what's left on the island. So now... If you go to an auction and you see a 1,800 Madeira, it's going to be $3,000. There's one which went for something like $25,000 bottle. So whoever, Richard Tulley, who, who owned the Sharper Image Company back then, he bought a load of 1,845 Madeira from me. <laughs> and I mean, I think it was 100 cases or something. I don't know what he's done with it. I don't think he has it anymore because I recently contacted him to ask and, and it's all gone, but it would have been worth a fortune today. As far as, more regular wines like Rainwaters and 5-year-olds and 10-year-olds. The 10-year-olds are probably in the $50 range. The Rainwaters and the 5-year-olds, like 15 and $25 a bottle. Those prices have gone up, but not to the extent. It's the same with port prices. Ruby Port, when I started, was selling for $7 a bottle. Today, it's probably about $15 a bottle. It's the same with that sort of growth in price for basic Madeiras.
1: So you mentioned... Madeira is an American tradition. Are there other things that you pitch to sommeliers or retailers when you're trying to sell them Madeira?
2: Not really. They will always ask food pairings. And really, Madeira, because of that high acidity, goes with anything. It can go with absolutely anything, basically. I focus on the history and the stories of you know, constitution, declaration, independence, and, and things like that. Is that the same for consumers? Yeah, consumers lap it up. They love those stories. Absolutely. It seems like Manny Burke's
0: rare wine company, they've actually really leaned into that history where they've taken the variety out of it and really named a city after it. And it's like the New York style, the Boston style and things like that.
2: It sort of annoyed me because people think that because he launched these brands around the same time as I was launching the broadband Brand. They think that he was one who sort of relaunched Madeira in America, not knowing that I'd done it a good 10 years prior in 1989, before he even had his company, let alone created that brand much, much later. But then it got annoying because he, he had these four labels named after cities. So you'd go into a restaurant, and you'd see those four Madeiras, and then you'd see my one 10 year old Momsie, which is a disparity. But then When we launched the Social Videlio Boal 10-year-olds to go with the Malmsey, now you see my four and his four. So it's more fair.
1: So that brings a question. How do you differentiate broadband Madeiras versus other Madeiras?
2: So I think the key to ours is elegance. That advantage is the fact that we have so many wines to choose from because Justino's does make 55% all Madeira and they give us a pick of what we want. They consider our brand their premium, most important brand. It's a brilliant partnership. So we can choose from a very, very, very wide array of wines and at different levels of warm ones, the room temperature ones and cellar temperature ones. So elegance, I think, is the key to our Madeiras, whereas maybe some Madeiras are more voluptuous, heavier Styles. And then Roy Hirsch, uh, who owns for the Love who is now one of the great experts on port and Madeira, his reviews have helped a lot. He's always ranked the Broadbent ten-year as the top 10-year-old, which is really the top 10-year-old momsey, which has helped us a lot.
1: And are there certain customers that are like the key supporters for Broadbent Madeira?
2: I'm just seeing restaurants all over the country, now that we have more visibility with the four wines, and also it helped last year where Wine Spirits magazine named Broadbent one of the top 100 wineries in the world. And then they also named Broadbent a single cask Madeira as one of the top 100 wines in the world. So yeah, that sort of press really helps. And then I have an amazing team of employees. We employ two master sommeliers. We have a very, very highly educated team of salespeople who are very, very respected in their markets. So they have been, I credit them for the sales because they go to all the restaurants and they do all these educational tastings. And so that's helped a lot. And the restaurant businesses are the most important area, although we do sell obviously retail and the retailers have grown a lot
0: this past year. So with every guest on our show, we always end the show with a final, some sage wisdom from our guests. And we ask them to talk about a lasting trend and a fizzling fad. And we'd love for you to talk about either the wines of Madeira or in fortified wines. What do you see as a lasting trend and what do you see as a fizzling fad?
2: When you said lasting trend, my first thing I thought was not Madeira or Porto. I was thinking Vino Verde because our broadband Vino Verde is growing every year so much. And the whole category of Vino Verde is one of the fastest growing categories in America. But in terms of lasting trends, I think Madeira is a very, very strong lasting trend. It is only going to grow, whether it's through tourism, wine enthusiasts talking about it. Madeira is a trend which will continue to grow. Within the category of port and Madeira, are there any trends that are going away there's a trend right now declaring too many vintages of port and i hope that goes away but i think that port is going to benefit because the wine world is now coming down from the trend towards lower alcohol wines so people are producing and the demand for low alcohol wines is growing which is going to open the doors to after dinner drinks again So that's one trend.
0: So the fizzling fat is high alcohol dry wines, which will allow for fortified wines to
2: surge. Okay, that's interesting. The high alcohol thing, it could be a a lasting and a fizzling because the the high alcohol for table wines is, I think, a fizzling thing, whereas the low alcohol for table wines is a rising thing. So however you look at alcohol levels in wines, one's growing, one's not Makes sense. Well,
0: Bartholomew, thank you for joining. Uh, I learned a lot about Madera, as always, every time I talk with you. it's always great to hear all these amazing stories that you've had in the business and the trade, and especially as you've been marketing Madera to the U.S.
2: Thank you very much. It's been fun chatting.
0: Thanks for joining us.
1: If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, she- cheers.